good being here. Yes, welcome. Very good. Wow. That's good. It's good to see you all again. That communion message was pretty good. I really enjoyed that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Amen. Christ is with us. He lives in us. We are his temple. How good is that? Yes. It's very good. Let's turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at chapter 4. Praise God. All right, let's let's just pray and ask for his presence upon the word. Father, I just ask that you would be with us. That your presence would be upon your word, Lord. That you would cause our souls to be healed. Because we have sinned against you, Lord Jesus. We need healing of our souls. So Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would bring revelation of the Scriptures to our hearts and minds, that we would take it on board, that we would become like it, we would be obedient to your word. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Wow. Okay. Now, this... uh, is a, a very well-known story from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And this is about, of course, the woman at the well. <clears throat> now, what I want to do this morning is uh, show you where Jesus really is here and what's going on around him and this story becomes very, very significant. It's um, actually um, the history of Israel <laughs> in this whole story. So it is really quite an amazing uh, encounter. But first, let's just read the first uh, three verses. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptise but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So throughout the ministry of Jesus, his three years here, he um, was travelling between Galilee and Jerusalem. This is what he did. He was moving always to and fro, so he'd go from Judea to Galilee or Jerusalem to Jerusalem. you know, back to Cana and then around different towns around the the Sea of Galilee. Then he would come back to Jerusalem. He did this, I keep losing count how many times, maybe five journeys backwards and forwards and then he went back out to where he was baptised by John to um, Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, that's east of Jordan. There was two Bethanies. Then he came back and that's near the end of his ministry. So this went on for three years, travelling backwards and forwards, preaching the kingdom of God. Now at this point, 
what's happening is, is Jesus begins, as he does this ministry, all the way he's targeting things, you see. So, and on this occasion, he's targeting religion, a false religion. There are many of those, but that's what he's targeting here. And what's happening is, he's uh, concerned about uh, the religious ways, about what they might what's going on here, you see. And so what we see is that the Pharisees, they were what is also referred to as the Jews. They are in the southern kingdom and the Samaritans are in the northern kingdom. And so what was happening is that the Pharisees, the very religious people, group of people, were seeing what was going on with Jesus' ministry and seeing that he was gaining a following. And you see, the religious are always concerned about what they're going to gain or lose. They're never concerned about the things of God. They're never concerned about eternal things. They're only concerned about temporal things. That's why we have a gospel of flesh today in a large part of the churches, you see, because they are just simply religious people. That's what they're doing. So this is what was happening at this time. The Pharisees were seeing this and they were trying to set up some kind of competition between Jesus and John the Baptist and so Jesus decides to leave there and uh, go on his way to uh, Galilee again and he stops at this place. Now before we go there, I want to just have a look at um, 2 Corinthians Turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll flick around some scriptures this morning. I'm hoping that I can pull all this together for you so that you can see how wonderful Jesus really is, how he addresses so many issues in our life, so many issues in the world today. Let's turn to John chapter 10 and I want to read from verse 3. It's just talking about strongholds, Okay. And this is what Jesus did. He tears down strongholds. And that's what we're called to do. Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now let's see what strongholds are. Casting down arguments. What arguments? Arguments against God, of course. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So this is the purpose of Christ, is to create a body of people who are obedient to him. When he has finished that, you will become judges of those who are disobedient. But the strongholds that we pull down are imaginations. They are thoughts and ideas that exalt themselves up against the knowledge of God. Now, it's my opinion that in our world today, we have three main strongholds. The most powerful one is religion. Second to that is evolution and then third is psychology. 
They are the three main strongholds in the world today. And in actual fact, the second two are really religious ones anyway. So you have religion. Now, religion is like this. You see, in the world we have two belief systems. We have those who know Christ and follow him. They are the true believers, the Christians, who have relationship with God. Then every other belief system is a religion and they all come under one main religion. It's called Mystery Babylon. It's the Babylonian religion. It's following after another belief system created by our enemy, Satan. Okay? So this is what's happening. So what they do is they'll even take God's word, twist it a little bit, do a bit of word crafting and create a religion that is chasing after the things of the flesh. Temporal gospel. Okay? So that's religion. That's a very powerful stronghold. And this morning we're going to have a look at some scriptures and see how that was created in Israel as well. They created their own religion after their own imagination to satisfy the things of the flesh. You see? And so this is what religion does today. And what religion does is they preach temporal things. Wealth. (laughs) Healing. See, the gifts of the Spirit are temporal. We're not going to need healing in in heaven, are we? We're not going to need words of knowledge. We're not going to need all of those things. They're a temporal thing. That's a gospel of the flesh. Yes, they're valid. God blesses us here. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the kingdom of God is a person and his righteousness and then these things will be added unto you. They're secondary. Yes, I'll take care of you in this life, but seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. So the gospel of flesh is preaching all the temporal things. Now, the true gospel preaches the eternal things. Righteousness, sanctification, holiness. You see? How wonderful is that? You see, the true gospel is that I am saved, I'm being saved and I will be saved. So, I am justified, I am being sanctified daily and I will be glorified. Amen? So, I'm already saved in spirit, I'm being saved daily in my soul and then my body will be saved at the end. I'll get a new one. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. So these are the three main strongholds that we see in the world today. The most powerful is religion. That's the mystery Babylonian religion. It's there. The second is evolution. But really it's a religion because you've got to believe in it by faith because there's no evidence, there's no science at all. It's, it's a belief system. Okay, and then there's psychology. You have to believe in that by faith as well. Okay, and really the whole three work together and they work separately. So these are the strongholds. Now, let's have a look back in John chapter 4. And from verse 4, it says, But he needed to go through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here we are. We're placing Jesus at Jacob's well in Sychar, also known as um, Shechem. 
He's in Samaria, near the city of Sikar or Shechem. He's at Jacob's well. He's sitting near the well, at the well, you see. And right next to them is Mount Gerizim. This is where Jesus is at this point in time. Now, Jacob purchased the land. You can read about this in Genesis. You'll have to do this another time. We don't have time to go through it this morning. But Genesis chapter 33 from verse 18 to Genesis 35:15 gives you the story of what happened in this exact spot, what happened at this place in Shechem. And this is where um, Jacob purchased this land. His daughter Dinah uh, was um, violated by Shechem, who was a prince. And then they did this deal and he wanted all the men circumcised and then he killed everyone. You just go and read the story. It's all there, you see, in Genesis. So this is where Jesus is sitting, at this very place. Now, Samaria is the northern kingdom, okay? And Jeroboam made Samaria a place of idolatry. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 12. Let's turn there. We have to see what, this, what the significance of this place is and the area and the people that Jesus is talking to in order to understand what's really happening. So 1 Kings... Chapter 12. Verse 25, let's have a look there. Okay, so this is is after the death of King Solomon. We've had King David. King Solomon ruled for 40 years in total peace. The kingdom expanded to its greatest ever and um, then Solomon dies and Rehoboam is meant to be the king of all of Israel. But then there's a rebellion that happens and Jeroboam gets involved. The rebellion you can read about, you've got to read chapters and chapters to understand what's going on here. We don't have time for that. But the rebellion is actually instigated by God. The prophet Nathan goes and talks to Jeroboam and says, you'll be king and you know all these things are going on and if you're a good king, all these good things will happen, but of course it never does. The northern kingdom always had evil kings and did evil things. Now, um, from verse 25, we pick up this part of the story. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. This is where Jesus is in our story, at the well. Okay? And dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He's getting a bit worried, Jeroboam. Therefore, the king asked advice, made, asked advice from his counselors around him and he made two 
calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. This is really important as well. We see this again today. Jeroboam ordained a feast. Uh, sorry, that's probably as far as we need to go. He ordains other feasts that are not of God. Okay, but So what's happening here is Jeroboam has caused a division in the kingdom. So Israel is divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Judea and uh, Israel. Now later on, Israel also becomes known as Samaria. We'll see that in the time of the silence, which is between Malachi and Matthew. Okay, so what happens here is Jeroboam's getting a bit worried about his, his position. See, this is all political. And he says, oh, it's too hard for you to go down and worship the way God says, going down to Jerusalem. What I'll do is I'll make these two golden calves. I'll put one in Bethel in the south of our, of our kingdom and one in the north in Dan and the people can go there and worship. So he's shifting them away from true worship to a false worship. He's taking their attention off of God's way. You see? Because if they go down to Jerusalem and worship his way, they will turn their hearts to the true Lord and to the true king and they will kill him and get rid of him. That's what we do, isn't it? When we get saved and we find out we've been worshipping idols or worshipping false gods, we get rid of them. You see? And we turn to the true God. And so this is what Jeroboam didn't want to see happen. He's worried about his position. So he creates all this idolatry. This is no different to what's happening today when people are preaching the gospel of flesh. And look at the distortion, he says. He's he's using a testimony of God. What's the testimonies of God? The testimonies of God are all the great things that he's done for Israel recorded in the scripture and for mankind recorded in the scripture. You also have testimonies of God. Every one of you who knows Christ Jesus has had experience with him where he's done things for you in your life, changed you, healed you, done all these wonderful things. They are the testimonies of God. You see, when you got saved, that's a testimony of God. And so here he's referring to one of the testimonies of God, how God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and then he distorts it and he says, these gods, these calves, these golden calves, they are the gods that delivered you out of Egypt. Oh, the church is saying, you know, that Jesus that you got, well, it's this one over here. He's a rock and roll Jesus. He's a dope-smoking Jesus or whatever else you want to imagine your Jesus could be. What's the difference? You see what I'm saying? Okay, so they're getting your attention onto another God and this is what Jeroboam did and this is what caused the split in the kingdoms. So we have the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. Okay, now let's have a look. Samaria, 
the town became the capital of the northern kingdom under kings Jeroboam, Omri and Ahab. So the northern kingdom, or Samaria, was exiled to Assyria in 722 BC. Okay? Now, what I'm showing you is how we get to the idea of the Samaritans and why they were so detestable by the Jews. Because they were exiled, so the northern kingdom was exiled in 722 BC to Assyria, the southern kingdom was exiled but only for 70 years in uh, 586 BC and they went into Babylon. Okay? So here in the northern kingdom, Israel is, is left or some of the remnant of Israel, the tribes of Israel, are left in this area called Samaria or the northern kingdom. And what they did was they intermarried with these five pagan nations and uh, worshipped their gods. Okay, so let's have a look at 2 Kings chapter 17. Turn there with me. Chapter 17 of 2 Kings. This is really important to understand the conversation with Jesus and the woman at the well. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 17 and from verse 24. It says, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cathar, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sekoth Benoth, the men of Kath made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the, the Arvites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in fire to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvim. So they feared the Lord and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines on the high places. 
They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. According to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day they continue practising the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment, which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Okay, so here what's happening is is that uh, this king, the Assyrian king, has taken the people of Israel away and spread them all over Assyria and he's brought other people in and they've mixed with some who were left in Israel and they've intermarried and then they began to uh, worship those five gods, those five groups of people. They began to worship their gods and they mixed it in. Now God sends lions in because this land belongs to God. Israel is God's land. He says what happens to it. No one else. (laughs) And he's going to take revenge on those who, who are holding it and doing all sorts of things with it that they shouldn't be doing. He'll be returning soon, I think. <laughs> I'm hoping. <laughs> so it's his land and he has given it to the Israelites. But on this occasion, God has taken it away from them because of their rebellion, because of the things that they've done. They have not worshipped their God from heart. They are not worshipping in spirit and truth. They are worshipping other gods. And so here, even... Um, if we have a look at um, Ezra, if I can go there quickly. In Ezra chapter 4 and verses 1 to 5, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarshaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Okay, so this is, at the, this is after the second exile of Judah to Babylon. They've come back now. So Rubbles has allowed them to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And now these guys in the northern kingdom have just referred to the first exile and saying, we also have been worshipping your God. Let us help you rebuild the temple. But Zerubbabel and, the, and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so here we see that these people from the northern kingdom, the Samaritans, were hindering the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem. So this is all 
uh, and then what we do is we come to the period of silence, okay, which is between Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew. And then this, and this time they became known as the Samaritans, the northern kingdom. So they've fallen a long way. They've mixed marriages, they've mixed, they've polluted the bloodline, they've done all of these things led by Satan, by religion, false religions coming in and they've had a mix of these religions with their own God and their own worship. You see that picture? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Okay. Now, in about 336 to 331 BC, a second temple was built on Mount Gerizim. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? (laughs) A second temple. It was destroyed in about 108 BC. It is referred to by the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 20. Let's turn back there. John 4, verse 20. It says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. They're right next to the mountain. She's pointing to it. (laughs) Our father said we should worship on this mountain. She's making a reference to this temple in the time of silence. Now, there was even some word games being played the, the religious people are very good at word crafting. So they tried to make the idea of Mount Moriah sound like Mount Moray. Two different places, but they were claiming that this mountain, where the second temple was, was supposed to be the one where Abraham worshipped. So they would twist things like this. That's what we see today, isn't it, in religion. We see the word of God being... Uh, having spin put on it or recrafted to mean something else. And this is exactly, this has always been happening. This is the, what happens in religion. We have to be very careful not to fall into the traps of religion and religious doctrines and things that lead us away from Jesus. And there's only one way to do that, is to immerse yourself in the Word of God. That's the only way. There is no other way. Believe me, there is no other way. We must immerse ourselves in the Word of God. That's our only protection against religion. It is, truly. Now, I want to read to you um, uh, some of the writings of a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. (laughs) And he outlines this temple how it all came about. It's all political. Okay. I'll just read it to you. I'm not going to read all of this, look, see. I just photocopied, I highlighted some main bits. All right? Not too much. (laughs) All right. And it's difficult language, see. This is translated from Latin, of course. Okay? So it's a little bit difficult. It takes me a little bit to get my head around it. It says, But the elders of Jerusalem, being very uneasy that the brother of Jedua, the high priest, though married to a foreigner, should be a partaker with him in the high priesthood, quarrelled with him. You see, so here at this time, in about 336 BC, uh, there's a high priest and he has a brother and his brother has married someone outside 
of Judaism. You see? They quarrelled with him, for they esteemed this man's marriage a step to such as should be desirous of transgressing about the marriage of strange wives and that this would be the beginning of a mutual society with foreigners, although the offence of some about marriages and their having married wives that were not of their own country had been an occasion of their former captivity. That's referring to the northern exile. It's brilliant. This is written by Josephus. You see? So he's making a reference to that captivity and of the miseries they then underwent. So they commanded Manasseh to divorce his wife or not to approach the altar. The high priest himself joining with the people in their indignation against his brother and driving him away from the altar. Whereupon Manasseh came to his father-in-law, Sanballat, that's his father-in-law, and told him that although he loved his daughter, Nicasso, yet yet he was not willing to be deprived of his sacerdotal dequinity. I had to look that up. That means holy priesthood. (laughs) It was Latin, okay? So here he is, he's saying, look, I'm married to your daughter who's, who's not a Jew, but I am next in line for the priesthood, I'm to the high priest position, so I'm going to divorce her because I do love her, but I have to keep my, my priesthood, you see. Big, big bit of a problem. So, which was the principal dignity of their nation, okay, and always continued in the, in the same family. So this is from a, a, a secular view of what's happening in Judaism. And then Sanballat promised him not only to preserve to him the honour of his priesthood but to procure for him the power and dignity of a high priest and would make him governor of all the places by himself now ruled if he would keep his daughter for his wife. He also told him further that he would build him a temple like to that at Jerusalem upon Mount Gerizim, which is the highest of all the mountains that are in Samaria. You see that? So this Sanballat is saying, well, you know, if you keep my daughter, it's all right, I'll make you a high priest and I'll also build you another temple like the one in Jerusalem but on Mount Gerizim. It's all political, This is how all this stuff happens. Isn't it amazing? Look at this. But Sambalat thought he had now gotten a proper opportunity to make his attempt, so he renounced Darius and taking with him 7,000 of his subjects, he came to Alexander. That's Alexander the Great. Pretty amazing. And finding him beginning the siege of Tyre, he said to him that he delivered up to him these men who came out of places under his dominion and did gladly accept of him for their lord instead of Darius. So he's saying, we'll, be, we'll follow you, Alexander, and here's 7,000 soldiers. You see? So when Alexander had perceived, received him kindly, 
Sambalat thereupon took courage and spake to him about his present affair. He told him that he had a son-in-law, Manasseh, who was brother to the high priest, Jeduah, and that there were many others of his own nation now with him that were desirous to have a temple in the places subject to him, that it would be for the king's advantage to have the strength of the Jews divided into two parts, lest when the nation is of one mind and united upon any attempt for innovation, that's foreign king's interference in their affairs, it proved troublesome to kings as it had formerly proved to the kings of Assyria. You see? Again, referring back to the times when they were in exile. Whereupon Alexander gave Sanballat leave so to do, who used the utmost diligence and built the temple and made Manasseh the priest and deemed it to it a great reward that his daughter's children should have that dignity. But when the seven months of the siege of Tyre were over and the two months of the siege of Gaza, Sanballat died. So he didn't even see the fulfilment of it. But it's all political and religious, you see. And you notice again, the thing here is they're appointing anyone and everyone to be priests. Isn't that what we see in the church today? See, no different. Man is still the same. He's still wicked and evil. He's still wanting to have eternal life but do it his way, not God's way, you see. I do not understand anyone who would want to be a preacher. I really don't. You've got to be crazy. (laughs) Just go and make money and enjoy life. But no, there's all these people out there who want to do it and they're not even called by God and they're making a hash of it. They're only preaching a gospel of flesh because that's where their minds and hearts are at. They're only thinking of temporal things, you see. So this is what's going on here. They're just picking people willy-nilly who can be a priest. There's one more last little bit here. Listen to this. This is interesting. It says, Now when Alexandra was dead, the governor was parted from his successors, but the temple upon Mount Gerizim remained. And if anyone were, were accursed by those of Jerusalem. So if anyone was cast out of Jerusalem or accursed by the Jews in Jerusalem and their temple of having eaten things common, so food laws, of having eaten things common or of having broken the Sabbath or of any other crime of the like nature, he fled away to the Shechemites and said that he was accursed unjustly. <laughs> uh, is that what we see today? Uh, you got somebody in your church and they're doing something wrong and you go and try and deal with it and they won't listen and then you say, oh, well, you might have to leave, you have to find somewhere else or cast you out for a little while, like, you know, how... Um, Paul handed over the immoral guy to the devil to deal with his flesh. Well, it doesn't work anymore. They just find somewhere else to go. That's sad, isn't it? That's what's happening, you see. Nothing's changed. Everything is exactly as it was back then. We're no different. The church is doing the same evils that Israel did. You see that? So this is how this temple came about. It was a political move 
to, to, have, to divide the nation of Israel again and to have power, the, the ungodly kings of the, of the world around them to have power over the people, of, over God's people. So Jeroboam did it, Alexander the Great did it with Sanballat, you see, and the, the guy who wanted the position of priest, who, was, who shouldn't have been in that position because of his indiscretion with who he married. Do you see what I'm saying? And so then we see them also picking people, anyone and everyone can be a priest in the northern kingdom and at this temple at Gerizim. The same thing's happening today. Anyone and everyone can get up there, do a two-week course and you're a preacher. <coughs> Gee, I don't know how you can do that in two weeks, but I've heard of such courses. So that's what Josephus wrote about the whole thing. Now, at this place where Jesus is, at Jacob's well, there's this staircase that goes up to Mount Gerizim and that's, this is where he is and this is where Jesus was sitting about midday when the Samaritan woman approaches the well. So we're getting a bit of a picture of what's going on. Now when we look at the conversation, it is an amazing conversation because we've got some background to it. You see? Have a look in John chapter 4 from verse 7. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she's up front about it. They've had hundreds and hundreds of years of this religious wars and disdain and antagonism. And she comes to Jacob's well and there is Jesus sitting at the well. And he says, give me a drink. And straight away she says, how is this? You're a Jew. You're asking me for water, to draw you water? I'm a Samaritan woman. We have no dealings. You hate us. We hate you. <laughs> see, the Jews say you worship here. They said you worship here. You see, the religious thing's happening. That's what's going on here. So she clearly points out the antagonism between Jews and Samaritans. Then in verse 10... Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What's the gift of God? Jesus in you. You see, the word of God in you, living in you. Jesus, that's the mystery of the gospel. Jesus in you, the hope of glory. The living water is the Holy Spirit. It is his word living in you. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is the water for the soul. We need water for the soul. It's the word of God. It's the only thing that can save us. Now, 
I just want to digress just a little bit to show you another aspect of the religious. Let's turn to um, Psalm 22, just very quickly, Psalm 22. Turn there. We have to understand a term that Jesus used and Paul used it and it's the dogs. Okay, in Psalm 22 and verse 20. Now, Psalm 22 is a picture of Christ on the cross. He looks up to heaven, he looks down, he looks back and it's, it's his view of what has gone on in history and then he looks forward. It's an awesome psalm. You read through it and you'll see that it's all about Christ on the cross. But there's this one point in verse 20 where he says, Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Now the dog is Satan. Okay? It was his hour. He's taken control. Jesus allowed, laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. He laid it down and he allowed the kingdom of darkness to crucify him. And he's on the cross and he's talking to the Father and he says, deliver me from the power of the dog. The dog is Satan. Okay. Then in uh, Philippians, let's turn there. Philippians chapter 3. Let's see what Paul says. Paul uses this term as well. Philippians chapter 3. And verse 1 to 3. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. You see? Who worship God in spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and, and have no confidence in the flesh. You see? So he says here, beware of the dogs. Now dogs, so first we said in Psalm we saw the dog, singular, that's Satan. Now he's, Paul is referring to the dogs. These are the religious leaders greedy for gain. That's who these people are. Religious leaders, greedy for gain. That's the dogs. Beware of evil workers and beware of the mutilation. That's the circumcision group. Again, religious leaders, you see. So he's saying beware of them. Then, um, uh, in, uh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56. Got to follow in the scriptures here. 
and verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 9, chapter 56, verse 9. It says, All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant, they are all dumb dogs. This is the, talking about the, the watchmen, the overseers. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough and they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one of his own gain, sorry, every one for his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. So these are the greedy dogs, the overseers that have no understanding of what's going on with the people. They don't care for the sheep and all they are concerned about is their own selfish gain. You see? So that's the dogs, the religious leaders, greedy for gain. And then back again in Psalm 22. Let's just quickly turn here. I have to point this stuff out. Otherwise you might think I'm making this up. (laughs) I don't want you to think I'm just making stuff up. (laughs) Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. That's the religious, that's the people, the, the, the dogs are the religious leaders, you see. Then, um, well, well, we'll just skip that one. We'll go to another one in Mark chapter 7. I'll I'll bring other scriptures to you a bit later, but let's have a look in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Now, this is really, this is very interesting, this. Jesus uses the term. Mark, chapter 7, and from verse 24. It says, From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now the Syrophoenicians practiced all sorts of evil but they were big on some other way of healing, you see. Now, I haven't sort of looked into it too much, but just to to let you know that they had other gods that would heal, but her daughter could not be healed. She was demon-possessed, had an evil spirit in her, and she heard about Jesus and she comes to him asking that he might help her. 
Okay. They also had a few... Oh, sorry, where are we? Here we are. Okay, so he... So she... And she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. You see? So we have the dog, the dogs, and now the little dogs. The little dogs are those following the dogs. <laughs> the religious leaders greedy for gain. So she's caught up in all kinds of religion, trying to heal and do all these things. None of it works. It's all lies. True healing comes only from Jesus. And now she's gone looking for Jesus. She's heard about him. She goes to him and then he says to her, this isn't right that I throw the bread to the dogs or the little dogs. Okay. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter and when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. How wonderful is that? You see? So she had faith in Jesus. She went to Jesus. She didn't go to her other priests and all the false religions and practices to heal. She went to Jesus and she begged her case before him and he says, well, listen, you're a Greek. I've got nothing to do with you at the moment. And later on in the Gospel, you see how that's turned. There's a point in Jesus' ministry where he begins to tell them parables. And the reason why is because now he's been rejected by his own people and he starts to turn to the Greeks. Isn't that amazing? And he says, I'll call in everyone, the good and the bad. Everyone, come. You see? That's what Jesus does. Isn't it beautiful? See, we're all Gentiles, folks. I think. Any Jews here? Salvation comes from the Jews. They're our brothers. You see that? Isn't it beautiful? And so this is what's happening here. This Syrophoenician woman, has, she's a little dog. She's been following the dogs, greedy for gain. And Jesus says, this isn't right. But then he sees her faith and he heals the daughter. We better move on. I'm, I'm getting behind, aren't I? <laughs> uh, okay, let's turn to Psalm. We've got to go to the Psalms. Psalm 119. Turn there. We're not going to read all of it. <laughs> It'll take too long. <laughs> I think it's the longest one in the book. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 81. It says, My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. You see? This is a chasing after God's word. And then Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3. Let's turn there. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
See, these are all about the Word of God being water and the Word of God bringing salvation. Now, in actual fact, this verse is where the Jews got the celebration at the end of the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles on the eighth day. They had a thing called the water libation. They base it on this one verse. It's a non-biblical festival, but Jesus uses it. This is where Jesus stands in the temple and he says, I am the living water. <laughs> Anyone who comes to me will not thirst. And this is what he's saying to this woman at the well. I will give you living water. Okay. So, and then, so that's where this comes from. So it's a non-biblical feast. We have non-biblical feasts, but just draw the attention to Jesus. We've got one coming up next week. Don't focus on Santa Claus, focus on Jesus. Amen? <laughs> Amen? Okay. Now, um, we've got to go... Uh, we've, we've got to hurry up. I know. Okay, Psalm 42, verse 1. Let's go there. Psalm 42 and verse 1. It says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Okay, now this, this verse, this one verse, is a picture of hunting deer. And that they have dogs they use for hunting. Dogs again, you see. And the dogs pick up on the scent and they chase down the deer and they kill the deer. But the only hope the deer has is to get to water. You see? That's like us. We have to get to the Word of God. It's our only hope. We have to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and we lose the scent of the world and they can't grab onto us and drag us down and destroy us. You see that? That's what's going on here. So this whole thing about Jesus being the living water, we have to drink in the Word of God. We have to immerse ourselves in the water to be saved. There is no other way of salvation. This is the only way. It's the Word of God. You see, there is no other way. Let's quickly move on then um, to John, uh, back to, to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Am I, I'm running out of time, aren't I? Is that right? No. Right. Are we all right? How long can I go for? <laughs> it's 12 o'clock, isn't it? All right, okay. Let's have a look at these two verses here. From John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. How wonderful is that? You see? So you see this conversation. And then she says, Are you greater than Jacob? Oh yes, he is greater than Jacob. Jacob gave them water for this life. Jesus gives us water for eternal life. How good is that? Amen. You see? Amen. Amen. So this is the, the whole picture here. So, so Jesus is in this place and there's this conversation going on and it's referring to all the things that have gone on in the past. 
And then what happens is he gets down to this woman and what she's done. So let's have a look at, from verse 15. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's coming at midday. There's a reason for that. There's shame in her life. She can't be there with all the others, you see. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So, let's just quickly go back to 2 Kings. Chapter 17. So he says to her, go and get your husband. She says, I have no husband. I've had five and the one I'm with is not him. It's not a husband. Okay. Let's have a look here. 2 Kings chapter 17 and from verse 29. It says, However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sekoth Benoth. That's one husband. <laughs> the men of Kath made Nergal. That's two husbands. The men of Hamath made a shimmer, that's three. And the Arvites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and that's four. And the Sepharvites burned their children in fire to Adrimelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvan. That's five husbands, folks. This woman is a representation of the northern kingdom. She's a Samaritan woman woman talking to Jesus at the Jacob's well, talking about eternal things and having a, a debate about religion. And then he nails it down and he says, go and get your husband. <gasps> Conviction. You see that? I've had five husbands and the one I'm with is not my husband. Then look at from verse 32. So they feared the Lord and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So anyone and everyone can be a preacher. Don't have to be called. We'll just pick anyone. They feared the Lord yet served their own gods. So yes, they've got a husband but he's not really the husband, is he? You see? They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day they continue practising the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandments which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob 
whom he named Israel. So yes, she's, got, she's had five husbands and the one she's with is not really her husband at all. You see that? That's, that's the northern kingdom, that's Israel. Yes, we worship God, but no, you don't. You go to all these other gods, you see? That's what's happening here. Okay, <clears throat> so then what we see, uh, let's just move on. We've got to go quickly to the next few verses here from verse 19 in John chapter 4. Let's go back there. Okay, now we'll just, this is just finishing off the, the rest of the conversation really. We'll, we'll move on quickly. But you see from verse 19 it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. You see, so this is bringing up all the problems of the past again. Yes, you've convicted me of my sin. But hey, I tried. (laughs) No, not good enough. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship, you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. How good is that? You see, so here it's about a truthfulness in our own heart, you see. Are we just coming for a religious order, for outward form that has no power of God? You see, when, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says that there are those who will have the appearance of godliness but lack the power thereof. They can't be godly. They do not have the Spirit of Christ in them. But they have this outward display of religious holiness and all this other stuff, but they do not have the power of righteousness. They don't have the power of holiness. They cannot follow Jesus. They do not worship in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what is happening here. So he has gone, he's busted up the argument. You see, her argument was we worship here, they say you worship there. He says, no, no, it's finished. He's gone down the middle of the argument, taken the bulls by the horn or gone through the horn and said, this is what the Father is after. People who will worship in spirit and in truth. Amen? That's what Jesus is saying to this woman at the well. How wonderful is that? And then Jesus reveals himself to her. Look at verse 25. the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. See, she's got so much knowledge. She knows things. She understands the word of God. But she's been caught up in a religion. I know Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. How wonderful. That must have been an amazing experience for her to see these answers, hearing these words from Jesus and then all of a sudden he reveals himself to her. 
The power of his words must have been so awesome. All of a sudden she realises she's talking to the Messiah. To Jesus, the Son of God has come. He's right here. He's told me all things I ever did in my heart. All the evil about me. You see? This is what Jesus does when he comes to us. I never found him, he found me. I was lost, he wasn't. He came to me. He said, John, look at your life. Look at the mess you've made. I said, yes, Lord. He said, how about giving me a try? I said, yes, Lord. How wonderful. He came to me and saved me. He revealed himself to me. I love it. That's my testimony of the Lord. There are many testimonies of the Lord in Scripture. Then look what happens. She does all the typical things a new believer does. Have a look from verse 27. And at this point his disciples came and they marvelled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to, and to finish his work. Jesus only did those things the Father told him to do. He wasn't running around willy-nilly, healing people and carrying on, big-shotting himself. He was only doing the things the Father told him to do. You see? And this is one of those occasions. Everything is planned. Nothing he does is, is by chance. He is a purposeful God. That's what it is. Intent, purpose. That's what the I am means. Intent, purpose. Everything about him is purpose. So Jesus said to them, My food uh, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not laboured. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labours. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. That was her testimony. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his, of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this indeed the, the Christ, the Saviour of the world. This is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. How wonderful is that? So first they believed because of her, then they went to Jesus and they believed because of him. We know he's the Christ, you see. So that's what this is all about. She's now an evangelist. She's reaching out to others and telling them about what happened, 
about the testimony of how Jesus changed her life. Isn't that wonderful? You see, now let's just, I want to go to one last verse in Revelation. Let's just turn there. Revelation chapter 22. We'll finish with this. Revelation 22, from verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. That sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) I like that. To give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Amen. That's what he was saying to her. I have the water of life. Jacob was good. He gave you water for this life, but I'm giving you water for eternal life. And let them come, everyone, come and drink in the water freely, the eternal life. Amen? Amen. Beautiful. I know you've got other things to do, so I'll get out of here. Thank you, brother. Jesus, he, Scripture says in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Amen. He needed to. And so 